0: If you are just joining us this morning, we began last week a multi-part series of studies together on the subject of what the Bible has to say about the afterlife. All of us are aware that one day we're going to die. Anybody wondering about that, clueless about that? All of us uh, have a, uh, a mortality sentence hanging Uh, over us. And because death waits out there for us, because we've experienced the death of people we love, many of us have got all kinds of questions about this uh, particular topic. I began last week to lay out four guiding truths from the Bible about the subject of the afterlife. And if you weren't with us, you may find it helpful to go back, pick up a copy of that message. They're at the literature rack. You can get it in audio, video, and printed form off of our website. That's true of all of the messages here at Christ Church. Please just go back and make sure that you're up to speed on some of these big ideas that we laid out and talked about together last week. Today, I simply wanted to lean into one question that gets suggested by these words that the Apostle Paul pens to the church at Corinth uh, in chapter 5. Keep in mind that the church of Corinth was the Chicago community of their day. It was a very cosmopolitan, well-educated community, and Paul was addressing some of the questions that they had. And this is what he writes in 2 Corinthians 5 at verse 1. Now, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now think about this with me for a minute. Paul clearly takes it for granted there that there is an afterlife, okay? He doesn't say we hope for it. We wonder about it. He says, we know it. Now we know it. And Paul himself did know it. Uh, He was one of those people who had met the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. On the Damascus Road, the light himself came to Paul and encountered him in a very dramatic way that utterly altered Paul's whole worldview. At another point in his life, Paul appears to have had some kind of experience in which he says he was transported to the third heaven and was able to catch a glimpse of what awaits In that dimension. And he's not alone. There are many people at the time he's writing this that are alive that met Jesus. Hundreds of them that met Jesus in the flesh after the grave. Paul implies here that far from being a fearful and alien place, heaven is our eternal home. And the home that we're going to is a good home, he's trying to tell us here. You know, we're living in a tent right now, and, and we're going to exchange that tent one day for an actual house. For any of you, that's, that's an upgrade. That's a housing upgrade from a tent to a house. That's what Paul is communicating here. The apostle also makes it clear that this eternal house is not built by human hands. And by that I take it, he means that what this house, heaven is like is is not something that's easily conveyed with human constructs, okay? With with human uh, pictures and, and boxes. And so the question arises naturally for most of us, what is this heaven? What is heaven like? How do you picture it yourself? Some people hear the word heaven and think immediately of a sort of Disney for the dead. Uh, it's sort of that, it's like a, an eternal vacation. Whew, finally, all the work of life is done. I get to go to this extremely lavish, luxury filled place. Heaven is that place somewhere over the rainbow it's in 7d technicolor all the time you know you almost need sunglasses because it's so brilliant and spectacular some of the images of scripture and some of the movies we've seen all suggest this glorious quality to this life it's a place where chocolate isn't fattening and you can have all the ice cream you want And your golf game is flawless finally and These are the kinds of images people have. Some people even think, you know, heaven is personalized. We all get our own personal, first-class, customized. Is this American way of thinking or what? Heaven. (laughs) Other people, mostly clergy, I think, think of heaven more as like worship world. It is the biggest worship service you've ever seen. It is a celestial church service. People are coming from every corner of the globe, every tongue and tribe, every time. They're all gathering in one huge place together, and they're dressed in pristine robes of white. I mean, nobody's wearing cutoffs. It's just gorgeous I mean, it's better than the best Easter with the beautiful hat. It, it, it's a fabulous environment. And, and, and the singing is just transporting. I mean, everybody sings, not just the ones over there. Everybody really sings out with all they are. And the message never gets boring because God himself is the messenger. He's the speaker. And there's no need for an offering ever, ever, because Jesus has paid all the debts. And the service goes on forever. (laughs) And nobody minds. (laughs) You see why I think clergy like this vision? For other people that I talk to, heaven is more like aha land, I think. You know, we go through this life Developing a lot of questions, don't we? I mean, there are a lot of things that are kind of mysterious and confusing to us. And we, we develop these wonderings and these longings over the course of our life. And for we, we, we hope and we pray, and there's some intimation in the Bible about this, that heaven is a place where finally that stuff gets resolved. You know, on, on day one, we finally learn why God created mosquitoes and poison ivy. And, and why it was in his infinite wisdom, not to let the Cubs ever win another World Series again. It, 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 it was in order to please all those White Sox fans. He's always had a heart for the White Sox fans. Uh, maybe, maybe. Day two is an even more significant day, because that's the day that we get to find out why we were never able to have that child that we wanted, or we lost the one, we longed for her. Why that person that we love so very much died in that awful way and far too soon. And then on day three, we're looking over there, and they're on the cloud. It's Like, I think that's Moses. That's, that's Moses right there. And, and oh, no, no, it's Charlton Heston. Oh, it is. It's Moses next to him. They're talking about that. And, and there's Mother Teresa right there. Oh, my goodness, there's a Democrat here. And a Republican, too. And we just go around heaven all day just going, ah ha! Ah, now I see. Now it makes sense. Is that how you think about heaven? How do you picture it? What is heaven, really? I mean, what is it? And how do you derive that picture? Was it from the movies? Was it from a song you heard or from a rumor, book you read, maybe a longing within your own soul? And where is heaven really? Where is it? Is it up in the blue skies someplace? Will there be clouds? Is it off as some of our Mormon friends picture it as on a glistening planet way out in space somewhere? Or is it... Is it up like the medievals always pictured it? Or is it deeper in like the medievals or the mystics and the, even some of the new age folks picture it? Or do every, does everybody get their own personal self-defined version of it? Or, or is heaven more like an arranged marriage in that you just have to get used to it, but you come to love it more than you ever dreamed possible? Really, there are so many questions we have about heaven. Even the question about when. When is heaven? Is it now? Does heaven exist now? Are people who've been here that aren't here anymore already there in heaven? Or are they waiting for the day of resurrection to come? Is that what happens? What does the Bible really tell us about this stuff? Well, when the Bible uses the word heaven, it's important to know that it uses that term in at least three different ways, as I can tell. Sometimes the Scripture uses the word heaven or heavens to describe the divine provision upon which we depend for life. We read this, of course, right at the very start. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in that passage and in hundreds of other ones through the Bible, that use of the word heaven refers to the physical space around us as distinct from the land on which we're walking. It's the atmosphere we breathe. It's the, um, the space out there beyond our, uh, our atmosphere in which our whole planet turns. But to the ancients, even that use of the term had a theological meaning to it. The ancients understood that, that Genesis communicated this idea that God had given hu- human beings dominion over the earth. He told us to rule over the earth. This was a sphere, he says, you're going to be able to control and to manage. At least I'd like you to manage it as well as you possibly can. But the heavens were something different. This was a sphere we could not easily manage. In fact, it would be from that sphere that would come what we depended upon for life. It would be the rain and the sun that would come from that dimension of life, a realm beyond our control. So the Scripture says, even in the New Testament, because of the tender mercy of our God, the rising sun will come to us from heaven. You see, in this sense, every time we use the word or read the word heaven, we're reminded there is a dimension to life which we absolutely depend upon but which we do not control. It is why when the sun finally returns to Chicago in May or July, our instant response, even if we're atheists, is, thank heavens. We couldn't compel it. We just depended upon it. It was a grace from above. In fact, the Hebrews used the word heaven as a synonym for God, for the gracious goodness of our God and they would use it rather than uttering the sacred name of God they would speak of what heaven wanted what heaven had done what heaven had graciously given the word heaven was used in the bible to describe not only the gracious goodness of God but also God's glorious greatness and our spiritual forebearers got something that we frankly have lost in our time as our own vision, I think, has diminished to some extent. Ironically, we've gained more knowledge, uh, more little bit of knowledge, or, or, or deeper knowledge about little things and lost the deep knowledge about the great things. The ancients understood that God was so great, was so magnificent and so mag- massive that to think of ourselves as masters of the universe or to regard ourselves as self-made human beings was not just the... Uh, Definition of arrogance, it was also an act of profound ignorance, of great ignorance. In fact, along these particular lines, I read recently that the astrophysicists have have discovered a, a star, and this particular star is so large that were it hollow, our entire solar system would fit inside of it our entire solar system inside of just one star. The psalmist was right when he wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God, the greatness of our God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And I wonder if that might not just explain why when God was trying to communicate his nature to human beings, when he was using human constructs to describe something that frankly was just beyond human constructs. He often revealed himself as coming down from heaven or as coming on the clouds or as being taken up into the clouds or into the sky. He often reveals himself in these very vertical ways. And I think that This is for a reason. How else do you describe to people who think they are the most intelligent beings out there? How do you communicate to people who haven't yet figured out that their entire solar system fits inside just one little star in a massive universe of trillions of galaxies and how many other universes our great God has made, how do you communicate to them the sheer height of His power and glory? You use these constructs and you hope that they don't get stuck in them. Don't get stuck in them. Don't... Don't confuse heaven with the sky or with clouds or with just up. That, that's helpful for children. It was useful for me as a kid. I think God may still reveal himself that way to minds who need that simple imagery. But it is not what heaven is like. Heaven is a whole lot more. According to the Bible, the word heaven refers not only to this divine provision that we see in space, but also, and even more frequently, to the present dwelling place of God. Heaven, in the Bible, often refers to the place where God dwells, where God is fully present now. Uh, God's worth is fully being recognized in heaven He is being honored completely and perfectly in heaven. His will is being fully done there, which is why Jesus teaches us to pray, may thy will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. It's being fully done in heaven. In that sense, heaven is the place where it's really happening the way God intended and, and this heaven is not always a distant place. It's not only for those who have died. I'll say more about that in just a moment. Jesus often spoke as if that, that kingdom of heaven where his father dwelled was very desirous of breaking into this plane. He so often talked about the kingdom of heaven being near, uh, 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 of it trying to break into human relationships and transform it, into the kind of place and environment that that heaven is. And and I believe that heaven does break in this way. Uh, I think that every time somebody recognizes the presence of God, anytime somebody is really fully acknowledging God's worthiness and and, and giving the honor that is due with their life, anytime somebody seeks to really do the will of of God, even though it's hard when it's pushing up against the will of God, of this world. Anytime that happens, heaven breaks through. I saw it this past week. I see it a lot of weeks. I saw it again this week. This family just had been ravaged by all kinds of heartache and moral failures on multiple sides, and it had left a generational impact in the life of this family. And they were just aching, but God's word came to one person in that family, and this person says, this is not God's will that it stay this way. And somehow this person managed to wrestle the other combatants into a room with me and one of our other pastors. And I was scared. I mean, there was a lot of hostility. There was a lot of pain in that room. And then the Holy Spirit of God moved upon the group. And there was confession, and there was repentance, and there was an opening up of hearts. And there was this courageous step forward into a new kind of life together. And that tiny, shadowy office exploded with light. And for a moment, I caught a glimpse of his dwelling place. And it was very beautiful. (laughs) There is, however, a larger experience waiting than the ones that we get as the kingdom of heaven comes in. And long ago, the apostle John was given... A real vision of it. Well, on the island of Patmos, he was transported to what Paul would have called the, the, the third heaven, the, the, the place where God dwells. And in Revelation 4 and numerous other passages in that book, he tells us what he saw. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, John is very careful. You'll note to say that God simply had the appearance of these things. He used human constructs, or it was re- given human constructs, to, to to perceive God. And jasper and carnelian are brilliant, precious stones. Here and throughout the book of Revelation, John is given these very vivid, colorful, three-dimensional visions of of what heaven is like. And they're all drawn from the richest symbolism of the earth. It would take me months to unpack all of those, by the way. In fact, it did take me months because I did unpack them 10 years ago. Cover to cover, Revelation, the entire book. It wasn't May 21 coming. It was Y2K coming. People were feeling urgent about this. I went through the entire book And if you'd like to go pick up that series, Future Faith, it's on our website, and you'll see so much more of the vivid detail of what heaven is like as John was able uh, to see it. But suffice to say that the big ideas throughout the teaching that Jesus gives in the Gospels and then in John in the Revelation, those big ideas are these. First of all, heaven is not a state of mind. Though it's heavenly when we get heaven's state of mind, heaven is a place. Heaven is an actual place. That place exists right now. It may just be a frequency vibration off of the dimension in which we're living. It may be all around us right now. That's maybe part of what Jesus meant when he said heaven is near. But it's real. Heaven is for real It may be outside of our universe altogether, but it's not just an idea. It has a reality to it. And the most important thing to know about this heaven, I think you could almost forget everything else, is that God is at the center of it. God gives heaven its entire character. That's the image that John is given by the throne at the center of of heaven. And everyone there recognizes God for who he is. He is. God is not just their kind of bailout plan. God is not just their occasional consultant. God is not just their resource when they're in trouble. God is God, and they know it, and they're awestruck and enraptured by it, and all day long they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's, that's just the natural response people have to the presence of God. Of God. And the glorious person of this God defines the place. It's a place of beauty and goodness and life and love and power and glory because God is like this. That's what heaven's like. It's like Him. And there are angelic beings there. And the image we get in scriptures of these. Massive winged seraphim, warriors, powerful beings who quake and fall in abject worship and love before God. But there are people there too. John saw 24 elders, he saw people there in the heavenly places. Heaven is not just the dwelling place of God. Hear me clearly on this. Heaven is the dwelling place of the souls of people who have departed this life and gone to be with Him. You can be one of those people. If you put your trust in God, as Jesus instructed us to in John chapter 14. The very same promise that Jesus made to that thief on the cross who had all kinds of flaws but who reached out in trust, in humble faith and confession to Jesus, that very same promise that Jesus made to him today, you will be with me in paradise, that same promise is good for you When you die, you will be with me in paradise. That very day, says Jesus. A nanosecond after your body dies, your eternal soul is going to go to be with God. If you put your trust in this life, in the God that Jesus introduces us to, you are going to go a nanosecond later to be with him in heaven. People looking at your body are going to know that something changed. I've seen it many times. Some of you have been there to see it. Somebody dies, the breath goes out of them. You're aware they're not breathing anymore, but it doesn't adequately explain what you see. And you know this is true if you've been there. Something uniquely that person is gone. And you can feel it. You can see it. It's because their soul is left. And at that moment, says Jesus, in Luke 16 and 22, God's angels personally escort you from death to heaven. How that happens, I have no idea. Here's the big idea. You won't get lost. Okay? You will not wander the earth as a ghost, no matter what Patrick Swayze has told you about this. You will not languish in some purgatorial waiting room. It doesn't work like the DMV. You will not sleep unconsciously for years. That is a doctrine called the doctrine of soul sleep. It is based on this passage in uh, Thessalonians, where Paul says, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like those who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And so many people have felt that what happens, obviously, is our souls, our bodies die, our souls go to sleep, and on the day of resurrection, somewhere out there, God wakes us up. That's not what the Bible actually teaches. It would be fine if it, if it was that way. Because you fall asleep, and the next second, boom, you're awake. It's like no time had passed. But what the Bible teaches is something different. Paul uses sleep simply to say to the Thessalonians, for believers, death isn't worse than sleep. Are you ever afraid of falling asleep? I look forward to it, right? I look forward to getting to the end of the day. Earlier and earlier, I might add. No. You die, your eyes close, and you wake up in heaven, your eyes open upon heaven. And you're fully, fully awake, just like Moses and Elijah were fully awake, where they appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels. They weren't asleep. they were in heaven, and they were awake. I want to save for next week a specific look at what you will be like in heaven. But suffice it to say for now that when you are in heaven, you won't mind being separated from this life. And that's hard to take in because this life is good. It is really good. We love the people here. You know, we love the experiences we have here. Life is a marvel. As Paul puts it, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And that's hard to embrace, that reality, because this life is such a fabulous privilege. It's such a fruitful privilege. Don't rush home, I would say to you. Don't rush home to your eternal house. You're needed here. You know, stay at this party as long as you possibly can. But know this as well. What... Christ's followers are heading for, says St. Paul, is, and I quote him here, better by far. Say that with me. Better by far. Yes, it's better by far. You've seen movies out there that tell you otherwise. There's the movie Heaven Can Wait. Oh, the guy doesn't want to go to heaven. He wants to be back on earth and playing his saxophone or whatever it was he played. Or You've seen the movie City of Angels with Nicolas Cage, and you've heard about how the angels are so jealous of human beings oh, I wish I was a human being I could kiss Meg Ryan. (sighs) Don't believe it. Don't believe it. The Apostle Paul had gotten a glimpse of the third heaven. He'd met Jesus back from the grave. And he said, Where we're going is better by far. Some of you know that in my off time, I volunteer as the on-air host for a television news magazine called Life Focus. And uh, we do all kinds of interesting shows, and we did one on near-death experiences. We interviewed Don Piper, the author of 90 Minutes in Heaven, and a number of other people, and you know, it's always amazing. People focus mainly on the incredible correspondence, the alignment between the experiences that people have had uh, as they've gotten you know, into, into death and then came out again. The experiences are so much like what the Bible teaches us about heaven and hell, about the afterlife. Uh, but that's not what got to me. What really stirred me up as I was listening to these, to these people talk was this recurrent comment, which I'll summarize in these terms. One of them said, if you ever find me uh, dying on a table and, uh, or lying bloodied by a roadside somewhere and you have the capacity to resuscitate me and bring me back, please leave me alone. Please just let me go. Beloved, heaven is better than Disney for the dead. Heaven is better than worship world. Heaven is better than aha land. It has elements of all of those things, I think, but gloriously more than that, heaven, Paul says, is better by far. But there is one last Dimension of what heaven is like, I'm not going to be able to go into today. Heaven is not only a sign of that divine provision, it is not only the dwelling place of God and the souls that have departed and gone to Him. Heaven is also, the Bible says, life on a new earth when Jesus returns. And it is towards an understanding of what that final heaven is and what we will be like living there that we'll be returning to same time same channel next week if the lord tarries amen